Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Soon we expect President Trump to sign into law the $2 trillion stimulus package to try to help ease some of the economic pain of the coronavirus pandemic. But we're going to begin this hour with the pandemic itself, which continues to spread and accelerate across the United States. We started this month with one death in the United States. One. We began this week, Monday, with 501 reported deaths from coronavirus. We are now at this hour almost three times that. The death toll today at this hour a devastating 1,451. And just minutes ago, we hit another horrific record in the United States. It is only 3 o'clock Eastern, but we have already had more deaths reported today than on any other day so far, at least 265 deaths just so far today. Also today, the United States Surgeon General is warning of potential new hotspots in the United States, places such as Detroit, Chicago, and New Orleans, he predicts. We'll soon see a surge like we've seen in other parts of the country, including New York City, the hardest hit area so far in the country. Makeshift morgues now being constructed in the city for the first time since the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Today, the U.S. Navy hospital ship Mercy arrived at the port of Los Angeles to help local hospitals in L.A. manage the influx of non-coronavirus patients so that the local healthcare workers can focus on the pandemic as much as possible. And while President Trump has suggested the nation he wants to get back to work by Easter, which is just over two weeks from now, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, is downplaying that. He is making an aspirational uh, projection to give people some hope. But he's listening to us when we say we really got to reevaluate it in real time. Businessman Bill Gates, who has in the past sounded the alarm over the potential of a pandemic such as the one we're going through, said right here on CNN that the entire country needs to shut down for six to eight weeks in order to effectively fight the pandemic. Today, the New York City mayor suggested there could soon be fines imposed for those who disobey restrictions there. CNN's Shimon Prokupes is live for us from New York City, specifically the Javits Center, which is being converted into a hospital. Shimon, uh, today, Governor Cuomo, Uh, said that there are more than 44,000 confirmed coronavirus cases and more than 500 deaths just in New York State. Now, that's up from 37,000 cases, 385 deaths yesterday. Cuomo saying that even though the cases are going up, he believes the overall rate is slowing down. Explain that for us. Right. And that rate is the hospitalization rate. What they are seeing slivers of good news here. And I think whatever good news we can give folks right now, I think that's important. What What's happening is they feel because of the social distancing and what they've done in this state and around this city, it's decreasing the number of people that are going to the hospital. So what he's saying, the governor, is that at one point, the hospitalization rate, the amount of times people were going to the hospital, was doubling every two and a half days. What they're finding now is that it's doubling 
every four days. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to continue to go to the hospital. They're not going to need urgent care, serious medical care. But they're seeing a slowdown in the number of people that are running to the hospital. So that gives him uh, some good news that he was able to share. The other thing, I just want to throw out some other numbers, Jake, here, is that the number of people in the intensive care units around this state is growing. Uh, over 200 just in the last 24 hours. That's now at nearly 1,600. And that is a key number uh, that the governor certainly is watching because those are the patients that need the ventilators. So that number continues to rise. The state, also important to note, is testing more than any other state. Another thing the governor said is a good thing because it's giving them indications of where the virus is. The key now obviously continues that as we approach the apex, the governor says that 21 days is to keep building out hospitals, giving them supplies, and of course, Jake, getting those ventilators in place. That's right, those ventilators. Human Procubus, thanks so much. New York's neighbor, the state of New Jersey, is now seeing the second highest number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States. That's nearly 9,000 cases with more than 100 deaths just in New Jersey. CNN's Athena Jones is live from PNC Art Center. That's a, a makeshift testing center in Holmdale, New Jersey. And Athena, you've been at this testing site all day. Tell us what you've seen. Hi, Jake. That's right. This is a drive-through testing site. You can see it's still behind me. That's because everything is still behind me because they reached capacity a while ago, the capacity of 250 tests or so. But when we arrived here several hours ago, there were lines and lines of cars lining up in three lines, passing by tents, uh, getting swabbed by healthcare workers who were wearing full protective gear, full-on suits, head to, head to toe uh, in protective gear in order to do that testing. You mentioned, Jake, that New Jersey has the second highest number of cases, second to New York. That number, uh, nearly 9,000, that jumped by 2,000 just overnight, and that is because so much testing is now going on. This is one of two state-run testing sites. It's a joint effort uh, with the health department of the state and also the state's National Guard. And today, at least, uh, anyone who comes who is a New Jersey resident who is showing symptoms was allowed to be tested uh, here at this site. They're trying to get testing uh, available for as many who are able to get it. Jake? And Athena, New Jersey's also offering testing sites uh, for first responders only. Uh, there's one in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, you say that the site you're at will test first responders tomorrow. Uh, tell us how that's going to work. That's right. You know, in Trenton, that site opened on Wednesday. It tested a, about 200 first responders over the first couple of days. Today, they were not testing. But here uh, tomorrow and at the other state-run site, Bergen County Community College, they will be testing not only first responders, but health care workers. Any first responders or health care workers who are symptomatic uh, will be able to come here and be tested. And this is so important, uh, Jake, because we've been hearing from so many health care workers and first responders, uh, EMTs, paramedics, uh, uh, firefighters, police officers, and of course, doctors and nurses who are concerned with being exposed to the virus, catching the virus, and then exposing other people to it, whether it's a vulnerable person in their home, like a pregnant wife or an elderly parent, or just members of the community. We already know of one EMS worker who uh, caught the virus from uh, her co-workers despite having no contact with patients. Jake. All right, Athena in New Jersey, thank you so much. In California, another coronavirus hotspot with more than 3,000 cases and 65 deaths, a U.S. Navy ship arrived at the port of Los Angeles there to provide relief for hospitals overwhelmed with coronavirus patients. CNN's Stephanie Elam is live for us right now at the port of Los Angeles. And Stephanie, how does California plan on using this Navy hospital ship? 
Right. Well, Jake, what you're looking at here behind me with this Mercy Hospital here, this floating hospital, is about a thousand beds that it is bringing. It also has 12 fully equipped operating rooms. It has a pharmacy on board. Uh, it can handle a myriad of anyone may need here. The idea being is that they will treat these adults here, not anyone who is suffering from COVID-19. This is the idea being to pull these people out of area hospitals and bring them here so that there is more room on these land-based hospitals for what they do expect to be an overwhelming need for space, for beds, for ventilators inside of these hospitals. They said that they're going to work with local officials, state officials to figure out which patients are the ones that need to be transferred here to this referral hospital. Uh, when you look at it overall, how many people are on board? You've got about 1,200 Navy medical uh, and communication personnel that are on board to work with these people here. They say that they should be up and operating as soon as tomorrow here. And when you look at the demand overall, the, the uh, mayor of Los Angeles saying that they do believe that we are pacing about six days behind where New York City is right now, Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam, stay safe out there in Los Angeles. Life or death decisions, a frightening directive from one hospital system. Which patients would get priority if the situation were to become that dire? Then I'm going to talk with a former CDC director. Is it inevitable that we will get to that point? Stay with us. Welcome back. We know hospitals across the country are preparing for the absolute worst and for heart-wrenching situations, but we saw what that looks like in a black and white letter from a hospital leaked from a Michigan hospital system, the Henry Ford Health System, to be precise. They say in a worst case scenario, worst case, doctors will have to choose which coronavirus, coronavirus patients will get care and which ones will not. Writing a letter, if it gets to that point, quote, patients who have the best chance of getting better are our first priority. And patients who are treated with a ventilator or intensive care unit care may have these treatments stopped if they do not improve over time, unquote. CNN's Omar Jimenez uh, joins me live. And Omar, it's fair to say this isn't a decision anyone wants to have to make. Uh, and we're not there yet. No one in the United States is there yet, although they are there in Italy. Does the hospital system believe it's, it's close to reaching this worst case scenario? What do they have to say? At this point, the short answer is no, but it's all going into that worst case scenario preparations. They say they are not at capacity yet. They do have enough ventilators to go through. Their supply is okay. But when you look at just a week ago in Michigan, for example, they had 350 confirmed cases. They are now closing in on 3,000 with at least 60 deaths to come with it. So it's that type of trajectory that has officials considering all types of scenarios, the worst of which we saw come out in this letter that was circulated that detailed which patients would get priority over others. And of course, you touched on one of the more notable portions of that letter saying that patients who are treated with a ventilator or ICU care may have these treatments stopped if they do not improve over time. Now, the Henry Ford healthcare system in Michigan runs a lot of hospitals in Detroit, and they say they emphasize, rather, that is not their current policy. It is a worst-case scenario, one they hope they don't have to get to, but as we are seeing, they are now preparing for. And this comes in the midst of the state saying they are struggling to get adequate supplies of personal protective equipment for those on the front lines of this, even, again, as we are seeing a surge in cases in Michigan and as well as other places in the Midwest, Jake. 
All right, Omar Jimenez in uh, Chicago. Thank you so much for us joining right now. Uh, Dr. Richard Besser, he is the former acting director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Dr. Besser, good to see you as always. Um, do you think hospitals and hospital systems across the country are having similar conversations right now to what we saw in that memo from the, the Henry Ford uh, Health Center? I hope they're having those conversations. You know, as, as you were saying, you hope never to have to use this. But part of pandemic preparedness and planning is coming up with frameworks for rationing scarce resources. This is something during bird flu preparedness in the mid-2000s we did. Uh, we held focus groups across the country to try and understand what people's values were, because there are different ethical frameworks that you want to use. We ration healthcare in this country all the time, and you don't want it to be rationed based on social connection or income or race uh, or immigration status. You definitely don't want it to be rationed based on whether someone has a, a disability. You know, this is something where if you plan ahead, uh, then you do everything under your power so you never have to use those guidelines. It takes the pressure off those people on the front line, those heroes who are taking care of patients. Is it inevitable that hospitals in the U.S. will get to that point? I, I don't think it's inevitable. You know, it depends what we do as a nation. You know, at, at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, what we say is we can know everything about this virus and how to control it. Uh, but if we don't give people the tools and the ability to follow the directions, follow the social distancing, we're going to fail. And we need to ensure that we're doing everything we don't, so that we don't lift up these social distancing uh, recommendations too soon, that we do everything to make sure that there's more ventilators being manufactured, that we look at some of these strategies to possibly use uh, one ventilator for more than one patient. You get creative, but you wanna make sure you've got those plans in place in case you have to go to them. The guidance from Henry Ford Health says in this worst case scenario, again, they have not enacted it, um, but in this scenario, quote, patients who are treated with a ventilator or ICU, intensive care unit care, may have these treatments stopped, stopped if they did not improve over time. Uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said today uh, that the longer you're on a ventilator, the less likely you are to ever come off that ventilator. Is Explain for us or explore for us the, the ethics of, of handling a crisis like this that way. Yeah, you you you. Uh you may have hard decisions to make. Going in, you want to make sure you're not excluding any big groups of, of, of patients. Um, there's some great guidance that's out there and ethical frameworks around this. One of them has to do with uh, how many years of life you have left. Uh, in the focus group work, it was clear that people wanted to, to prioritize very young people, you know, children who haven't gone through teen years and their 20s and their 30s of so many more years of their life that they haven't even experienced, to, to set priorities there over people who are near the end of their life, uh, to set priorities over people who, are, who, who you expect based on their conditions, based on their status and their scoring systems, based on their status, are they likely to, re to recover and leave the hospital? And you don't want to make those decisions too early, especially with, the, especially with a disease where we don't have that long of an experience with it. But yes, there are times where you may have to decide that you don't want to continue with the treatment if it's not having any uh, signs of improvement and you don't expect the patient to come off the ventilator and go home. These are the kinds of decisions that, that medics and physician's assistants on the battlefield make. There are five people who are wounded. They can only handle one, two at a time. Um, it's not normally 
right? The kind of thing that a doctor or a nurse uh, in an American emergency room or ICU has to make. How difficult is it to make such a call? I think it's more difficult if you don't have a structure. If you have something where it comes down to, well, who do you know? Uh, how much money do you have? Uh, any other kind of issue? Um, we do have other systems of rationing. If you look at the Oregon procurement system in, the, in this country, it, it, there's scoring. There are different factors that go into there, and people agree to that. And it makes it much easier on the people who are taking care of patients to say, here's the system. Here's what was agreed to. Uh, as hard as it is, we may not have an organ for you. Here's a system where hopefully we won't get to the point where we have to have that hard conversation with a family, uh, with a patient, and say, I I'm sorry. We want to make you comfortable. We want to make you as comfortable as possible, uh, but we don't have a ventilator for you. But if we do all we can to take the pressure off the healthcare system uh, and the social distancing, you know, there's signs that social distancing is slowing things down in certain areas. If we do that, hopefully no one will have to make these decisions. Let's hope and pray we never, we never get to that point with this pandemic in this country. Dr. Richard Besser, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Stay safe, my friend. Coming up next, a potential deal to make more ventilators hit a roadblock. Why some Trump administration officials are questioning the timeline and the price tag. Stay with us. Beautiful day. Soon we expect President Trump to sign the historic stimulus package. We're going to bring that to you. Live once it begins. Meantime, President Trump has been lashing out at three Democratic governors in three of the state's hardest hit by coronavirus. They dared to ask him for federal assistance with badly needed medical supplies. Let's go to CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. And Caitlin, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo now pushing back after President Trump last night on his favorite channel questioned whether New York actually will need 30,000 ventilators. Yeah, the president seemed to scoff at that idea, saying that hospitals didn't need that many ventilators before, so why would they need them now? Of course, the circumstances have changed drastically as we are now in the middle of this pandemic. But also today, the president accused Governor Cuomo, saying he was stockpiling the ventilators that New York did have. And Governor Cuomo spoke with our colleague Shimon, and he said that was not an accurate portrayal of exactly what's doing, what's going on. Listen to how he explained why they are putting these, these ventilators that they're getting in storage. That is incorrect and grossly uninformed. The, uh, the point is, we have ventilators in a stockpile, and we didn't send them to the hospitals yet. Of course we didn't. That's the whole point. Now, the president has been paying close attention to pretty much every press conference that you've seen Governor Cuomo giving. And he's also been tracking which governors throughout all of this have been praising him or criticizing the federal government, saying that they aren't getting what they need from them. And Caitlin, President Trump is also fighting with General Motors today. Can you explain that? Yeah, this is notable because it does come after last night. The president downplayed the need for these ventilators. And today he's lashing out at car companies saying that they aren't making ventilators quickly enough. Now, the background of the president's tweets where he's lashing out at General Motors, telling them to start making ventilators now, is that they had been in talks here at the administration with GM and this other company to talk about a joint venture to make ventilators. But they kind of put it on hold when they came close to announcing it because they were worried about how long it was going to take the ventilators to get made and how much it was going to uh, cost. But now today, after the president has been lashing out at them, GM announced they are moving forward with making these ventilators anyway, though they did not say if they're going to have the federal government and FEMA's help with the financial aspect of it. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN business anchor 
uh, Julia Chatterley to talk more about all this. Um, so, Julia, talks with General Motors seemed to hit a snag of some sort when the administration questioned the price tag that GM was offering and the timeline. The president's communications remain kind of confusing about whether or not he is invoking or will invoke the Defense Production Act, which would allow him to mandate that companies manufacture well-needed goods. Do you think he should officially order GM to manufacture ventilators? The irony here, Jake, is that they were already trying to help anyway. Yes, he could invoke this act. He could order them, whether it's Ford or GM, to produce. But this act is way more powerful than that. Remember, it assumes a degree of responsibility, a coordination of the entire production, an understanding, and this is critical, of the supply chain. We've had medical device companies coming out today and saying, hang on a second, if these big automakers are making ventilators, they're going to deprive other manufacturers of key hard-to-get component pieces. Their suggestion was, how about we have GM and Ford make those component pieces themselves? The bottom line is this act should be used for efficiency. How do we make the most amount of ventilators in the shortest amount of time? It requires leadership, Jake, ultimately, and assuming responsibility. So... Um, hmm, is my response to whether right. he should or not. So, I mean, just on that on that point, uh, you were talking about the need for efficiency. I mean, we keep interviewing governors and mayors who are competing with each other to order supplies. The mayor of Los Angeles yesterday, Garcetti, told me that they had ordered, I think, 100,000 um, PPE or masks. And then FEMA took them from them. They had the check cut and everything. And we, we hear this all the time from governors. Um, they're, they're letting, they, one of them described it as a Lord of the Flies situation. It's hunger games. We've got states stealing from each other. People are bargaining. Nothing about this is coordinated. And again, this is why people are looking towards this act and saying, look, if we had somebody that could control all of this, could look at the supply chain, could make sure again, that we've got the right people making the ventilators themselves, the right people perhaps using idle facilities like the automakers, for example, producing those component pieces. You bring it all together and you coordinate it and we could have more ventilators. Then someone can send them to the places where they need them most. It just requires coordination. Perhaps it wouldn't need this act if indeed the government was more organised about the process in the first place. But it doesn't look like we're seeing that. And that's a critical problem at this stage. And Everybody's voicing that opinion other than the White House. And Julia, today the credit rating agency Fitch warned that the U.S. is at risk of, of having its uh, credit rating downgraded soon, obviously due to the recent shock to the system because of the mm. coronavirus pandemic. The, the debt the country is taking on, in addition, uh, could, could also prompt the, the lower rating. Would that trickle down to everyday Americans? Now, if this were a normal world at normal time, a second credit rating downgrade, remember, because S&P has already done this and other rating agency has downgraded them in the past. It would mean higher government borrowing costs. It might mean a, a, a knock to the equity markets, a weaker U.S. dollar. So for consumers in this country that are buying things from abroad, televisions, for example, they could get a little bit more expensive. But this is not normal times. Loads of different countries are racking up debt, spending like crazy, of course. In a battle of the economic uglies, Jake, the U.S. wins. So I don't think it means much, quite frankly, to consumers or the government. OK, so again, what passes for good news uh, in this era? Julia Chatterley, thanks so much. We'll come back to you in the next hour. <laughs> the governor of New York says the peak of the pandemic in New York state may still be three weeks away. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to a top doctor from one New York City hospital about the tsunami they're facing there. That's next. Stay with us. 
Welcome back. As the number of cases across the country grow, so do the fears among healthcare professionals who are working in unimaginable conditions, reusing masks, risking their own lives to care for the most vulnerable. A nurse at Emory Hospital in Atlanta pleading, pleading with people to donate masks and understand the fear and the stress that healthcare workers are battling. Call us heroes, but you know, we have families too. And all the nurses are so scared. And we don't want to be scared. And being told you can, can't you have to reuse masks that are meant for one time and wear them to different patients is just insane. It is insane, Sonia. Joining me now is Dr. Peter Shearer. He's the chief medical officer at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn. Uh, Dr. Shearer, you just came out of a hospital staff meeting. Um, Tell us about the conditions on the ground there. Tell us the latest. Um, So for us here at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, um, we're we're a moderate-sized community hospital, and uh, we have about room for about, about a normal day, about 212 patients. We're up to about um, 225 patients in the hospital, um, and 170, 171 of them are um, COVID-positive patients. Um, and there are currently 20 other 20 patients are still in the emergency department waiting to get up to a hospital bed. So it's very tight, very crowded, and these patients are they're just they're indescribably sick. Uh, Do you they, and your staff you know, have enough PPE? At this moment, at this moment, we do. Um, we do sort of. We we want to. We try and control the flow of it so that it goes out to the unit at the right time, and people are using it when they're facing patients. Um, but you know, our strategies from last week have, have had to change because last week we had um, ten patients, and now we have 170. So all staff are really encountering these patients and caring for them um, every hour of the day. So all staff need it. So. We have PPE out on the units. Sometimes if a patient crashes, all of a sudden you may need five people to go into a room to um, intubate a patient and provide care. So all your PPE is suddenly consumed and you have to replenish the stock. So there's a constant, constant effort to keep the PPE out on the units. Congresswoman Grace Meng of New York uh, tweeted, quote, a nurse at my Elmhurst hospital, that's in Queens, who I don't know, just called me crying. She said they need ventilators, but more so need doctors and also doctors who are intensive care unit trained. I see you trained. She told me they cry every day because they know they're going to die. They're begging. Um, You're on the front lines. Uh, It doesn't sound like it's quite as bad where you are as it is in, in Queens, at least according to that account. But are you hearing similar accounts and how are you and your staff doing in terms of your fear of this deadly virus? So, you know, and, and I know I have, I have wonderful friends at Elmhurst Hospital and colleagues there, um, and they're, they're, they're really doing an amazing job um, under stressful situations. Queens and Brooklyn seem to be pockets of increased activity. Um, so please, I, what I have going on here is absolutely unlike anything I've ever seen before. These 170 patients are, they're incredibly sick. They, um, within a span of a few hours, their oxygen levels will plummet drastically. Chest x-rays go from being mildly abnormal to a huge amount of inflammation in the lungs. So this is going on across my hospital throughout the day. 
Um, and it is taking a, a, a toll, an emotional, physical toll on the nursing staff that is at the bedside, watching these patients progressively become more and more short of breath. Um, and knowing that the thing you can offer them um, in terms of a ventilator probably isn't even likely to save their lives. So there's an incredible amount of uh, sense of frustration and hopelessness um, among staff um, because everyone, the nurses, the doctors, the PCAs, everyone in the hospital went into this to make people better. Um, and the virus is so aggressive and so aggressive in the lungs um, that it um, really you know, leaves us with this phenomenal feeling of hopelessness. That's just d- devastating to hear. When you say that the ventilators might not even help some of these patients, obviously it would help others, but why would it not help some of the patients you're talking about? Well, because we're not necessarily helping the underlying um, condition, right? We're not, we're not eradicating the, the viral burden in, in the patients. We're not able to, there's no, there's no treatment for that. So what we're providing is the ultimate in supportive care, putting someone on life support hoping that over the course of a few days on a ventilator, their lungs will improve and they will get better just by their natural biodefenses. Unfortunately, the ventilators themselves, because it's, you know, it's positive pressure being forced into the lungs, they can cause their own degree of injury on top of the inflammation that's there. Um, so we've had just most of the patients that we put on ventilators are still on ventilators. Um, a few of them have died. We have not been able to successfully here transition people off of ventilators back breathing on their own. Um, I'm fairly aware across the Sinai health system, so we're talking hundreds of patients, not just my patients here. They've had a few successes, like one or two, um, but it's been very, very rare. Dr. Peter Shearer, while I have you, if Governor Cuomo is listening, if President Trump is listening, if Dr. Anthony Fauci is listening, what do you want them to know? And, and oh well, I'm sure most of those people are listening um, and have heard it. Um, we what we need, um, you know, we're getting some deliveries of masks, donations of masks, um, some food delivered to support the, the the staff in the hospital. It really is a way of showing love from the community. Um, but we need we need more staffing. Um, nurses, PCAs are, um, are are under tight supply. They're the ones at the front line, so often they're the ones who have gotten sick and have gone out. Um, and then the ones that are working their hearts out, I think need, they need, they're going to need more support and they need to get a day off. They need to get some space, spend some time with their families. I mean, it's they're they're when we call it, they're on the front lines. It's that it is just like that. It's the front lines of a war zone. Um, so particularly more nursing PCA staff, um, nursing assistants to help support, um, the patients and the staff would be fantastic. Dr. Peter Scherer, God bless you and, and to everyone there uh, at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. Coming up, Walmart Thank now you, installing Dr. barriers between cashiers and customers. I'm going to talk to a top Walmart executive about that and getting products on the shelves and much more. Stay with us. Welcome back. American retail giant Walmart is installing plexiglass sneeze guards at checkout counters in thousands of Walmart stores to protect their workers and their customers from coronavirus. The retail giant is also putting up reminders about the six foot social distancing guidelines to help stop the spread of the virus. Joining me now is Dan Bartlett, Walmart's executive vice president for corporate affairs. 
Uh, Dan, good to see you again. So Walmart, the largest too, private Jay. employer in the nation. Um, we've heard stories of Americans, consumers, trying to quickly grab everything they can off the shelves, toilet paper, groceries, whatever they can get. What's that been like for Walmart since you provide so many of those goods to so many Americans? Well, frankly, it's been quite extraordinary, Jake. It's like having Black Friday day after day after day. And it started really in the early hours and days of this event to be more about cleaning supplies, disinfectants and those things. But then as the restaurant industry and others started shutting down, it really focused in on food and consumables as more and more families are are eating at home and staying, obviously, with the order, staying at home. And so we've seen an enormous amount of pressure on the system. But in the recent days, we've kind of reached a new normal, if you will, with regards to the supply chain. And I think that's because the American public is seeing that grocery stores like Walmart, because of the hard work of our associates, are keeping food in stock. Manufacturers are working hard to make sure that we have that supply. We're taking it straight to the shelves. Retailers like ourselves have also managed our hours, so we're shut down overnight. It allows us a chance to uh, to, to clean the stores, but also uh, stock the shelves. So these mitigation measures that we're taking are making it uh, a little bit easier on the system. And I think as the public continues to see that the food will be there, that it will be a little bit more of an orderly process. So we saw the signs that, that your stores are putting up reminding people uh, to keep six feet away from each other. How do you make sure that a place that normally might be one of the most crowded parts of town, the, the local Walmart, um, doesn't become a place where people contract coronavirus? Do you limit uh, the number of people in, in the store at any one time? What, what do you do? It, it, quite frankly, is a challenge. We are one of the few places in the country that are still a, a large gathering point uh, for the public because it's such a essential need for the public. And so we are taking different mitigation uh, strategies like putting signage on the floors, the barriers that you mentioned, the plexiglass to put to, at the cashier stands that are going in literally as we speak, uh, signage around the store itself that we'll continue to put up to help encourage our, our, our customers to, to adhere by, to those standards of six foot rule and those things. But frankly, it is difficult. And we are in, in some jurisdictions where mayors or other jurisdictions have put placements in uh, as far as gating the amount of people who can come in. But this is a dynamic process and we're learning each day how to manage this better and better. And we'll continue to improve to make sure that we live up to our responsibilities to help uh, make sure that this social distancing takes place. So one of your part-time employees, a woman named Melissa Love, she's part of the labor advocacy group United for Respect, wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times, I'm sure you saw, about her concerns over coronavirus. She said, quote, "Um, if I or my coworkers develop symptoms, we could face the impossible choice of going to work sick and possibly infecting others or risking our already precarious finances. There are over 1.5 million workers at Walmart who are trying to get ahead, but they have nowhere to turn during this crisis hundreds of thousands of part-timers like we are feeling especially squeezed. So, so what do you say to her? What do you say to your workers who are, are going in every day and, and, you know, they don't want to infect anybody, but they also need money to live? Sure. And it was, it was disappointing to read that. I mean, for the most part, and I'll, I'll get specifically to some of those concerns, but tens of thousands of our over a million uh, strong workforce have been going into those stores and serving and seeing this as part of their public duty. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that they have the information they need that we're passing along from the CDC and other public health experts. The first and most important one is that if you are feeling any symptoms, if you feel symptomatic, if you have a fever, any of those things, you shouldn't come to work. And we've adjusted our PTO policies 
to make sure that they can not be punished for not missing work. No one's going to get fired uh, for staying home because they are feeling ill or just not feeling comfortable going to work. And if they do contract the virus, God forbid, we have other policies in place to give them short-term disability insurance. All those things are in place. In addition to that, we spent $550 million giving a special bonus to both full-time and part-time workers to reward them for the hard work they've been doing this last couple of weeks. So um, they are doing incredible, heroic work, and we're doing everything we can to make sure that the standards we have in our stores, around hand-washing, around the distance control, all are in place because we know it's the best part of our company, our, our associates. Dan Bartlett, thank you so much for your time, and thanks to your workers who are doing a really important job at a very difficult time in our nation. Thanks, Jake. In minutes, President Trump is set to sign the $2 trillion stimulus bill, though there is one major player who has not been invited to the ceremony. But first, we want to take a look at some of the CNN heroes on the front lines of this pandemic. These CNN heroes are on the front lines of the pandemic, bringing medical care and supplies to those in need. They're ER doctors putting their lives on the line. I have never been a part of a pandemic. We're seeing widespread illness. It's organized chaos, organized confusion, but we are there for a purpose. Bringing COVID-19 testing to the homeless. It's really important in these times to remember that we're all in this together. These are our brothers and sisters out here. And putting life-saving soap into the hands that need it most. In the last two and a half months, we have provided over 375 thousand bars of soap to people in affected countries. Acts of selflessness and unwavering courage from everyday heroes reminding us all that we're not in this alone. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Uh, At any moment, we are expecting President Trump to sign the $2 trillion stimulus bill into law. We're going to bring that to you when it happens. An aide telling CNN that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has not, not been invited to the ceremony at the White House. We learned earlier this week that she and President Trump have not spoken in at least five months. But now to the coronavirus pandemic itself and a turning point in the United States, the U.S. now reporting the most coronavirus cases in the world more than 97,000. That is more confirmed cases than Italy, which has so far seen more than 8,000 deaths. Though a top Italian health official is warning today that Italy has not even yet hit the peak of the pandemic in that country. That is also more confirmed cases than the Chinese government is reporting, though, of course, an important caveat, the Chinese government has not exactly been a paragon of transparency and candor or facts during this crisis. In the United Kingdom, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has now become the first world leader to become infected with the coronavirus that we know of, along with the UK's health secretary. Both are in self-isolation as of now. In the US, the death toll currently stands at 1,495. That is up 44 deaths in just the last hour. We have already surpassed the record set yesterday for most coronavirus deaths in the the U.S. reported in just one day. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, today saying that, quote, this is a moment that is going to change this nation, unquote. Hard to argue with that. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, now U.S. Navy ships 
are, are lending additional support in the battle against coronavirus. With 1,000 beds on board, the Mercy docked in L.A. this morning. Confirmed cases here are climbing. That if this rate of increase continues, in six days we will be where New York is today. A second Navy hospital ship, the Comfort, expected to dock in New York City Monday, where the mayor believes more than half the city's population will catch this virus. We're going to uh, seek to build another four temporary emergency hospitals. More than 500 now dead in New York State, among them a nurse at Mount Sinai and an NYPD employee. The governor says the rate of increase now falling, peak infection still three weeks away and more ventilators still needed. His advice to the rest of the country? Get the equipment and get it sooner. And if you don't get it now, you're not going to have it when you need it. Detroit now among the nation's emerging hotspots. We think we're still on the aggressive upslope and we still have several weeks to go as far as when we hit that peak. More than 500 new confirmed cases in Michigan in just 24 hours. Do health workers there have what they need to stay safe? Absolutely not. I have now got doctors and nurses on the front lines who are using one mask for their entire shift. One Detroit hospital system is preparing for possible life and death decisions ahead. A letter ready to send to patients and families reads in part... Because of shortages, we will need to be careful with resources. Patients who have the best chance of getting better are our first priority. A company spokesperson telling CNN this letter is part of a larger policy document developed for an absolute worst-case scenario. It is not an active policy. Every major hospital system in New York and Detroit and Chicago and Seattle are having exactly these same conversations internally. Chicago, another growing hotspot, a refrigerated trailer now at the Cook County morgue, increasing capacity. I think there are certain people... The president still talking about opening up at least parts of the country for Easter. Well, I think that the president was trying to do, he was making an aspirational uh, projection to give people some hope. But he's listening to us when we say we really got to reevaluate it in real time. And any decision we make has to be based on the data. Now, that is the 1,000-bed Mercy Hospital ship behind me, a strange sight for peacetime. The governor and the mayor are visiting it this West Coast lunchtime. The plan is to get regular patients out of Los Angeles hospitals and put them on the ship to clear space for the expected COVID-19 wave. And we just got some updated numbers from L.A. County. They say that confirmed cases here tripled in just the past six days and those numbers are expected to continue to climb jake all right nick watt thank you so much and we should just note uh we started this broadcast uh the death toll was 1451 the death toll is now 1505 we have passed the grim milestone of 1500 as the death rate from this virus keeps going up. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta uh, joining me now. Uh, and, and Sanjay, uh, an internal memo uh, from a Michigan hospital system has been getting a lot of attention. Uh, it details, and the hospital has confirmed it's real, it details how in a worst case scenario, uh, they are preparing protocols for life and death decisions that might have to be made during an emergency. Who gets a ventilator, who does not? How long does somebody get to stay on a ventilator? Part of the letter says 
uh, to quote from it, quote, some patients will be extremely sick and very unlikely to survive their illness, even with critical treatment. Treating the patients would take away resources for patients who might survive. Now, I should underline um, that the Henry Ford Health System uh, told CNN uh, that none of their hospitals are near, anywhere near uh, having to enact such protocols. And none of them are at capacity with coronavirus patients. Um, but, I mean, we, we've seen what happened in Italy and we're tracking, we're about, the U.S. has been following Italy by about 10 or 11 days. It could happen. I mean, we need to be honest about that. Yeah, look, I, I think we do have to be honest about that. And I can tell you, Jake, uh, first of all, Michigan's my home state. I know many of the doctors there. I've been speaking to some of them uh, off the record on background today. And, you know, a couple things really struck me. One is that, as you point out, this is a, a, a real letter. They all, they all knew about this. They all knew that this letter was uh, being circulated. Uh, and they weren't, there was no degree of surprise by this at all uh, when I talked to these physicians. Uh, you know, based on what they're seeing and the projections that they're hearing, when you hear a doubling rate uh, that happens every couple of days, the numbers double every couple of days, I mean, it goes, you know, that's, that's exponential growth. So you really can't sit here and, at any point really uh, in, in Michigan or many of these places around the country and say, things look okay for now. I, I, that, you just can't think that way, I think, when, when the numbers are growing that quickly. So they are, um, they, are, they are talking about this. Many physicians, many physician groups are talking about this. These are real conversations that are happening in the country right now. It is challenging, obviously, because a lot of people who, especially those in, not in the healthcare profession, are hearing about rationing decisions, which is what this is. They're hearing about rationing decisions up front in a way that they've never probably ever heard before. And it's, it's jarring, I, I, I admit it, but it's real, Jake. It's ha- and not just there, but in many hospital systems. Yeah, and I've seen some people criticize uh, members of the media for even covering this. Um, uh, covering it as if we're we're fear mongering. Uh, it's very clear we're not at that point, but it's also clear other Western countries like Italy have reached that point. I want you to take a listen to the mayor of Detroit, Mike Duggan. He he applauded uh, the approach uh, and and the forthrightness from uh, of this healthcare system, talking about a worst case scenario. Henry Ford is one of America's great healthcare systems, and uh, what they put out was honest. We're trying to bend. Uh, the curve. The governor uh, of the state has put a shelter-in-place order in, uh, and where everybody is doing everything we can to stop it. But you would be irresponsible as a ho- as a healthcare system CEO if you weren't planning for that eventuality. Do you agree? And do you think most hospital systems and hospitals have plans like this in place, whether or not they acknowledge it publicly? Yes, I, I think most hospital systems do have plans in place, and I can tell you that you know I. I that's what I've been doing is spending a lot of time talking to people in various places around the country to really get a sense of, of how things stand. And you do hear about this. In, fr- in fact, Jake, in the New England Journal of Medicine this week, there was an article. This is a, a journal that many f- people in the medical community read. And they basically talked specifically about what might rationing look like. Uh, should there be independent committees that are set up in a hospital, for example, so that the treating physicians and nurses uh, don't have to be the ones that are, you know, there, there can be an independent body helping make these decisions. I mean, these are real discussions happening. And Jake, look, of course, no one wants or hopes that this will happen, but this is the sort of preparation that has to take place because all of a sudden, if people are confronted with it and they have no no sort of plan or idea or sort of way of thinking through this, that, that's, that's, uh, that's tough on everybody as well. It's tough no matter what, but that makes it even tougher. 
And Sanjay, you and I have been yelling this now for weeks and weeks, if not months at this point. Um, the hospitals do not have what they need. They don't have the personal protective equipment. They don't have the ventilators. Now, in terms of the PPE, um, according to the Italian Association of Doctors, 51 Italian doctors who tested positive for coronavirus have now died. That's a lot uh, of people to die. And that's a huge shock to the healthcare system. Look, I mean, uh, th th this was tragic. I, I, I saw that alert come across 51 physicians, 32 of them in this northern area. I mean, these are entire communities of, of medical professionals that are, that are, whose lives are being lost right now. It's really sad, Jake. I think that th this idea that people have been screaming, the Italian uh, Medical Federation screaming as well for some time that they needed more PPE, this wasn't a precaution. It's protective equipment, uh, but it was essential. And I think... You know, just as many countries around the world did not pay attention to Italy, you hear from people in Spain that I've been talking to, yeah, we, we thought that it was over there, it's not really going to come here. They were watching what happens in Italy, and still some of the same precautions were not being taken. This, what happened to these doctors, 51 doctors who've now passed 32 in just the northern region of Italy alone, I mean, everyone should listen to this because we can learn a lesson. We can better prepare. It was not just precautionary sort of principles. It was essential principles. And it's also a reminder that, that in healthcare settings, in hospitals, that's where people are most likely to get sick. The virus is clearly circulating even more robustly there. You can't keep safe distance away from each other. The patients uh, are aerosolizing, more likely to aerosolize the virus in, in those settings. So we've to, to pay attention to this. And you know, look, I, I know that there's places around the country where they say, yeah, so far we're good. We have enough PPE right now. The numbers are doubling every couple of days, Jake. Their hospital systems have gone through months worth of their PPE in just weeks. So they, they really need it. And, and, and we, should, we should heed the lesson from Italy. So and lastly, Sanjay, uh, it's been made very clear by not only uh, Dr. Fauci, but even Vice President Pence that this goal of opening up America so the church pews can be crowded uh, in Easter, which is just uh, two weeks and a couple days away, that, that that's aspirational, which is another nice way of saying President Trump's push for that uh, is that's what he wants to happen, but we're not going to be able to do that uh, and also save lives. When do you think there will be at least some ability for the nation to think about a return to normalcy? Well, you know, I, I, I've asked just about everybody that question, including Fauci, including Bill Gates. Uh, last night, I've talked to various hospital systems. You probably saw Governor DeWine in Ohio, who was very aggressive early on, closing Ohio State University early. People thought, what are you doing? Uh, he did that very early. And he, and he even is saying, look, it's looking like, um, you know, maybe end of April, May. Nobody knows for sure. We don't know exactly where we are on that curve. I think if we see a few days where the, the, that doubling number starts to come down, that's going to be a good sign, sort of saying that we've gotten close to the peak. But, you know, I mean, I think, you know, most people are saying that the entire cycle is probably eight to ten weeks, so the peak maybe, you know, four or so, five weeks into this. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. As always, we'll you have this conversation again on Monday. Have a great, safe, and healthy Absolutely. weekend with you and your family. You too, Jake. Coming up, we're, we're continuing to monitor the White House where President Trump is about to hold a signing ceremony for the stimulus package. Uh, we will bring that to you. Uh, he did not invite the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, even though the president is constantly talking about the need for the country to pull together. Uh, he is not inviting the person who got the bill through the House. Plus, 
breaking news on the Defense Production Act. We'll bring that to you next. Stay with us. Breaking news after months of governors begging him to do it. We have just learned that President Trump has finally invoked the Defense Production Act for the first time. This comes as President Trump is set to sign the historic $2 trillion stimulus package that just passed the House. An aide tells CNN that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who of course helped shepherd the package through the House of Representatives, has not been invited to the signing ceremony. In fact, it appears that no Democrats have been invited to the White House. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House. Caitlin, let's start with uh, the Defense Production Act. What are you learning? What might this mean? Yeah, Jake, this is notable because for weeks we have heard these confusing statements from the president over whether or not he had actually used the federal powers he had granted to him by signing the Defense Production Act. He would say publicly that he had used it and then aides would later tell us, no, we actually have not used it to compel any companies to make any products, any of these needed medical supplies yet. But now we do have an official statement from the White House saying that the president has used it. And it's notable the situation that he's using it in. Now, from this statement, they say that basically they are granting using the authority that they have um, that General Motors must accept, perform and prioritize federal contracts for ventilators. The president says in this statement, our negotiations with GM regarding its ability to supply ventilators have been productive, but the fight is too urgent to allow the give and take of this process to go on. And he says pretty bluntly, quote, GM was wasting time. Now, the background on this is that the White House and GM and this other company that makes ventilators had been in talks about this joint production to start making ventilators. But those talks got put on hold because they weren't sure how long it was going to take them to make them. They thought it was going to cost too much. So they'd essentially been reassessing the terms of that. But, Jake, I spoke to several people about this this morning. They were still hopeful this would pan out. And there were not plans to use the Defense Production Act as of this morning. So now here we are just a few hours later where they're actually invoking it. But, of course, Jake, the other thing that's important for people to remember is signing the DPA is not some magic wand. It's not going to create these factories that are already ready to make ventilators. It's not going to make them ready by tomorrow or the amount that we've heard states and governors say that they need. It's still going to have to require for GM to retool their factories to where they can actually make ventilators because they currently don't make them at this plant in Indiana. So the question still here is going to be the timeline, whether or not these companies and are going to be able to produce this in a time that these hospitals say is sufficient for them to have the ventilators they need to treat people who have coronavirus. And we should note, these are machines that are used for people who cannot breathe on their own, the worst ends of the coronavirus patients. That's right. And Caitlin, uh, on the signing ceremony, it appears that no Democrats have been invited to President Trump's signing ceremony, despite the fact that every now and then he says that the country needs to come together, how great it is that the, the bill passed the Senate 96 to nothing. Is there a strategy behind this? Is he trying to make it seem as though only Republicans are bringing this well-needed aid to the American people? Or or is this just petulance and pettiness? Well, it depends. I mean, this morning the president said working with Democrats is hell. That's what he said in a tweet when a Republican was trying to essentially have a vote where people have to come in person to vote on this bill. Of course, that actually did not happen. They got it passed pretty quickly after the drama subsided this morning. But yeah, no Democrats have been invited. It's only Republicans if you look at that list that the White House just gave us. And of course, the most obvious person missing is the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, but also Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who the Treasury Secretary spent a fair amount of time in his office this week as they were going back and forth on these negotiations. They spoke multiple times. We also know that Pelosi and Mnuchin spoke multiple times as well as they were really shepherding through this process, trying to find 
find something that everyone could agree on because I think both sides of the aisle realized they had to get something passed or it was going to be um, political hell for them to pay coming on the other end of this. But it is notable that the president doesn't want Nancy Pelosi here. We know because of Manu Raju that they have not spoken in five months, and it doesn't appear that today is going to change that. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much for that report. Um, the administration's response today, note it, and the invocation of the Defense Production Act, especially compared to exactly four weeks ago today, exactly four weeks ago today, then acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney publicly questioned journalists who were covering what is clearly now a pandemic, one that has now killed more than 1,500 Americans. The press was, 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 was covering their, their hoax of the day because they thought it would bring down the president. The reason you're paying so, you're seeing so much attention to it today is that they think this is going to be what brings down the president. That's what this is all about. That's obviously a lie. This was not about that. This was about sounding the alarm about a public health crisis that now has a devastating body count. Mulvaney made those remarks, we should note, at a conservative conference, CPAC, just outside Washington, D.C. And the Washington Post reports that Mulvaney, before he made those comments, had been tested for coronavirus. And thankfully, he tested negative. Moreover, per the Post, at least three attendees of that very conference, of CPAC, have since tested positive for coronavirus. One of them had contact with high-profile players, including Five lawmakers, such as Senator Ted Cruz, who then had to self-quarantine. It really is hard to imagine anything more emblematic of how the White House downplayed the threat of this pandemic than the White House chief of staff saying one month ago that coverage of this deadly virus was not legitimate, while A, he had already been tested for the virus, and B, he was talking to a room full of people potentially being exposed to it at that very moment. 51 doctors now confirmed dead in Italy from the coronavirus with almost 1,000 total deaths just yesterday. Why one top official says it will still get worse for, for Italy. Stay with us. Welcome back. Italy is now reporting the deadliest day on record, 969 dead in one day. One official saying they have not even reached the peak of coronavirus cases in the country. We have reporters around the world, and uh, let's begin with Delia Gallagher in Italy. Um, and Delia, the, the number of deaths in the past day, staggering, almost 1,000. Uh, what are things like in Italy? Well, listen, Jake, on the numbers, uh, you know, statistics are pointing that to the fact that these patients are overwhelming, overwhelmingly, excuse me, elderly uh, with two or three underlying health conditions. Only one percent of the patients who have died are under the age of 50. So, of course, we know Italy has a large elderly population that may be playing a factor in these high numbers. Other countries with different demographics may not see uh, the same kind of death rate, we hope. Uh, the number that a lot of experts are looking at right now is the question of positive new cases. And with the exception of yesterday, we've seen that go down. So that has led experts to say that there is cautious optimism. We had the president of the Italian Health Institute say that Italy may not have yet reached its peak, but that he thinks it should happen in the next few days. So that is obviously an important number that the experts are tracking here, Jake. 
All right, Delia Gallagher, stay safe. Uh, let's go now to London, where we find CNN's Bianca Nobilo. Um, in England, of course, Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, just announced today that he has tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, Bianca, Johnson's been criticized for being kind of glib about this in the past. A few weeks ago, he was boasting about how he went to a hospital and was shaking hands with coronavirus patients. That certainly looks like hubris now, doesn't it, Jake? And this is a prime minister who is naturally disposed to being more cheerful and buoyant. He has struggled with the gravity and the seriousness of this. Also, let's not forget that it was the British government's articulated strategy to go for herd immunity. They were an outlier in the global community, more similar to what the president of the United States has been advocating. So in those earlier days, he took a far more laissez-faire approach. But it's not just the prime minister. It's also our health secretary, Matt Hancock, and the chief medical officer of England has also now self-isolated because he has symptoms of coronavirus yet to get that positive diagnosis, though. So, Jake, that now means that the three men charged with navigating Britain through this national crisis are now all self-isolating because of concerns about the virus. And it's no surprise, really, as well as the behaviour that you refer to. Downing Street itself, I've been in there, it is very cramped. You know, it's, it's a warren of little corridors. It's very hard to keep those social distances when you're working in there. So it perhaps doesn't come as much of a surprise, given all the people the Prime Minister's been meeting, that we have the news that we have today. Well, it's bad news. Uh, Bianca Nabilo, Delia Gallagher, thank you so much. Stay safe to both of you. The U.S. Surgeon General says three more cities are likely to become the next coronavirus hotspots. The major event being blamed for the spread in one city. That's next. A stark warning from the U.S. Surgeon General today who says that the coronavirus pandemic will likely get even worse next week, especially in potential hotspots such as Detroit and Chicago and New Orleans. In Louisiana, state officials admit they're facing a critical shortage of medical supplies as the confirmed death toll jumps more than 40 percent overnight to 119. And as CNN's Ed Levandera reports for us now, the biggest concern is in the Big Easy. This is one of three drive through testing sites set up in and around the city of New Orleans. Long lines of cars winding through this parking lot. But each of these sites can only test 250 people per day. This site reached its limit in two hours. So far, more than 21,000 people have been tested statewide. Louisiana's governor says the state is in a dire situation as the number of coronavirus cases continues to spike quickly. We are one day deeper into this event. And while we don't know what the duration will be, we do know that we are doing everything within our power to respond to this crisis. Uh, and we need everyone. I implore everyone to do their part as well. The governor has said hospitals could run out of bed space and ventilators by early April. Medical teams are preparing to turn the convention center into a makeshift hospital. State officials say 120 beds will be ready to take coronavirus patients by this weekend, and the site could ultimately stage more than 1,100 beds. 15 years ago, the New Orleans Convention Center was the site of despair and grief in the days after Hurricane Katrina. For many, this is bringing back the emotional memories of seeing this place once again at the center of another crisis. It feels eerily familiar. Ikoi Rooney is the president of the New Orleans District Nurses Association. She spoke with us from inside one of the hospitals treating the growing number of coronavirus patients. 
What kind of stress are these medical professionals under right now inside these hospitals in New Orleans? They are under tremendous stress, obviously. We are, you know, dealing with um, something that we've never dealt with before. Do you feel like the worst is still yet to come? We know that this is going to get worse before it gets better. I will tell you, you know, there is a lot of fear and anxiety. Um, but what I'm seeing uh, more than anything is that people are responding so amazingly. Across New Orleans, life is at a standstill. Most businesses are shuttered and the usually bustling streets are mostly quiet. A city used to being in the eye of storms is not used to finding itself in the eye of a viral pandemic. And Jake, state and local leaders continue to implore people to stay at home. And for the most part, many of the places that we've been to here in New Orleans, much quieter than what you would normally see here in the city. That is the convention center uh, that you see behind me now. And state officials also urge people to remember that this isn't just a New Orleans problem, that coronavirus has been found in all but nine parishes of the 64 parishes in this state. And another area of great concern is in the northwest corner of the state in the Shreveport area area as well. So that message is very clear. Everyone being urged to stay home, that that is their best uh, attack in fighting this virus right now. Jake. All right. At Lavendera in New Orleans, please stay safe yourself, my friend. Uh, In our Earth Matters series, uh, an interesting development in the coronavirus crisis uh, on the environmental front. New images showing a sharp decline in pollution over several major cities in Europe, according to the European Space Agency. And as CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, reports, uh, this pandemic is a stark reminder of just how important it is to heed warnings from experts. Hello, Earth lovers. Bill Weir, CNN, from a very surreal Brooklyn, where, for some reason, uh, I can't stop thinking about all the disaster movies that start with someone in power ignoring a scientist. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. That's just one of the parallels between coronavirus and the climate crisis. You only have 11 years to live, folks. 11 years because climate change is just coming up on us so fast. Think about it. Both kill the most vulnerable and will cost trillions. Both will reveal heroic first responders and scientists and inspiring neighbors as well as deplorable hoarders, grifters, and profiteers. And both are reminders that life as we know it depends on predictable flights and growing seasons and supply chains. But what if the age of predictability is over? Which brings us to the main difference between coronavirus and climate change. Fear. Exhibit A, Jane's Carousel here in Brooklyn. The last time it was this deserted and depressing was after Superstorm Sandy. And between the melting ice caps and sea level rise, there is no scientific doubt my neighborhood is going back underwater. But invisible carbon dioxide molecules cannot shut down a carousel or a city or a world the way an invisible virus can, because we think we have time. Time waters down fear. But if we could go back in time, just a few months, Wouldn't we take science a lot more seriously? Wouldn't we know that the countries that wait for their people to start dying before acting suffer the worst? And the countries with the most transparency, decisive leadership, and mutual trust fare the best? Wouldn't we know the importance of flattening the curve? You've probably seen this by now, right? 
This represents time. This is the number of patients in the dotted line. It's our hospital capacity. A sudden pandemic spike crashed the system, but with enough smart leadership and mass cooperation, we can flatten the curve. And guess what? This works with climate too. Miami is trying to flatten the curve of sea level rise by spending millions on higher streets and bigger pumps. California is trying to flatten their curve with new wildfire regulations and insurance laws. But so much of humanity still thinks about the climate crisis the way a spring breaker thinks about coronavirus. We get no school and we can do whatever we want. Since the global fossil fuel economy slowed down, you can see the cleaner air from space. And in just a few weeks, China conserved about half as much heat-trapping pollution as Australia or the United Kingdom burns in a year. Mother Earth can bounce back if we let her. And it shouldn't take a, a global pandemic and recession first. Just more smart science, more smart leadership, and a sense that we're all in this together. Something to think about the next time you wash your hands for 20 seconds to say people you will never meet and life as we know it. Bill Weir, CNN, New York. And our thanks to Bill Weir for that essay. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to one governor who is warning that the coronavirus peak in his state may still be a month away. Stay with us. Welcome back in Ohio. There are now more than 1,100 confirmed cases of coronavirus and at least 19 deaths. Though state officials are cautioning, there are likely many more unknown infections. Joining me now to discuss is the Republican governor of the Buckeye State, Mike DeWine. Uh, Governor, thanks so much uh, for joining us. First things first, how is the containment, how how is the containment effort in your state going? You you were noted for being pretty aggressive pretty early. I think it's going pretty well. Um, You know, we put in orders early on. uh, And I've always said, though, to the people of Ohio, it's not what I order, it's what you do. And I think people get it. Uh, They're trying to keep the distance. Uh, There's always, you know, a few exceptions to that. But I think people are doing pretty well. You said today that Ohio might not hit uh, the peak until May. And you expect a surge in the next two weeks. Um, What are you doing to prepare for that? And and why do you think that? Well, we base that on modeling. We've always uh, gone on the best science we could get. We have been told by the best scientists that this would hit sometime between late April uh, and mid-May. This morning, I was on the phone with the Cleveland Clinic, who've done some refiguring on the model. Uh, They think uh, the best estimate is about mid-May. And the reason, frankly, we were talking was not just about when it's going to hit us, uh, but what we do to get ready for it. So two things are going on. We're trying to di- do the distancing on the one side that we're asking Ohioans to do every single day, stay away from each other. But on the other hand, we have to build up our medical capacity, our hospital capacity. Uh, the estimate this morning from the Cleveland Clinic uh, is that when this we hit our peak, uh, you know, we may be well short of where we need to be. And, and we knew it was going to be short, but the estimate this morning was we need to build out double what we have or maybe even triple uh, what we have as far as our bed capacity. And we're working on that. Uh, I've asked all the, the hospitals to come together in each region of the state. They're going to submit to me by tomorrow morning a, a rough plan of their region of the state. And we're going to start you know, building this out. Uh, so we're beyond the planning stages. Now we're into the action stages. 
I know that a lot of governors, especially in the hardest hit states like Washington, California, uh, New York, uh, are really struggling right now because of the surge in patients, which uh, have not yet hit Ohio. And of course, I hope it never does hit Ohio, but it probably will. Um, President Trump has suggested uh, the governors are, are asking for more than they actually need. He's specifically been going after uh, three Democratic governors personally, uh, including Governor Whitmer uh, of Michigan, Governor Cuomo and, and Governor Inslee, um, because they've been seeking more ventilators. Uh, this is what the president had to say last night. Governor Cuomo and others that say we want, you know, 30,000 of them, 30,000. I think of this, you know, you go to hospitals, they'll have one in a hospital. And now all of a sudden, everybody's asking for these vast numbers. Governor Inslee, that's the state of Washington. He uh, was a failed presidential candidate. And, you know, he's, he's always complaining. And your governor of Michigan, I mean, she's not stepping up. I don't know if she knows what's going on. I, I'm not going to hold you responsible for words that you didn't say. But I'm just wondering, since the president does seem to have some regard for you, what you would tell him about how to deal with governors going through a situation like they're going through. Well, we've had a good relationship with the White House. Uh, the things that we've asked them to do as far as waivers and things they've, they've done, they've done very quickly. Um, you know, each state's different. Uh, and there's just, you know, there are not enough uh, personal protection uh, equipment, for example. And so we're working very, very hard to, to get more of that. We're looking to our manufacturers in Ohio to see, can they manufacture some of that in Ohio? We're doing everything we can, just like other states are, to try to, try to get this in place. So every state's different. Um, I can only comment really about what's going on in Ohio. And we're, uh, we are hearing from our first responders. We're hearing from uh, people in the medical community that we've got to have more of the personal protection uh, equipment. Uh, we know that uh, the ventilators, we're certainly looking for ventilators. We're looking for ways to, to deal with that as well. So, you know, every state is, is, is doing what it can do, and, and we're very, very focused on this. One of the things we keep hearing from governors is that you're put in this impossible position where you're all bidding against each other for these supplies. Uh, we were talking to Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles yesterday, and he said they had an order for some masks, and then at the last minute, FEMA took them. And we've talked to other governors, Illinois, Michigan, others, talking about how, how difficult this is. Are you having that problem, and would you like there to be some sort of centralized way uh, for, to avoid this, uh, for, to keep this from happening? Well, I heard from a hospital this morning, they've, they've told me about ventilators that they had ordered. Uh, they thought they were coming and they were diverted someplace else. I mean, look, this is just uh, the fact of life today. Um, you know, when we get done with this, uh, I think one of the lessons is going to be that we have to beef up our, our whole health care system, particularly our public health system. Uh, but, you know, that's no one's fault. That's been the way it's been in this country for a long time. Uh, I think one of the lessons as we come out of this is we have to change that. All right, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, good luck. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to tune in uh, to CNN State of the Union this Sunday morning. We're going to talk to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. We're going to talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci. We're going to talk to the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. That is uh, su Sunday um, as well as we're also going to talk to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, and Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday, only on CNN. Coming up, the White House task force briefing. They're set to be.
Again, they're setting that up. CNN's going to bring that to you live when it starts. Stay with CNN. We'll be right back. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 